for the time has come, the walrus said, to talk of other things. This is a podcast not about shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about the who, what, where, why, and how of shellfish aquaculture, including the many different legal challenges that can arise. We're the National Cigarette Law Center, and we invite you to sit down and get ready for a wave of knowledge. Hi, I'm Stephanie. I'm the director of the National Sea Grant Law Center. Hi, I'm Kathy. I'm a senior research counsel at the National Sea Grant Law Center. And I'm Amanda. I'm the Ocean and Coastal Law Fellow at the National Sea Grant Law Center. You're listening to Law on the Half Shell. Up until now, we've mainly been focused on legal issues involving shellfish grown in bays or open marine environments. However, freshwater sources can have an impact on shellfish aquaculture as well. In this episode, we'll be talking about some of the legal issues involving freshwater that have affected shellfish aquaculture in recent years. So freshwater sources can impact shellfish aquaculture in a myriad of ways. First, some shellfish, such as freshwater mussels, must be cultivated in freshwater due to their biology. Freshwater mussels are different from their saltwater cousins in several ways. Unlike saltwater mussels, fertilization for the freshwater species takes place internally. Male mussels release sperm into the water, where it is then taken into the bodies of the female mussels, who actually utilize fish as hosts for their larvae. A female mussel can produce hundreds of thousands of larvae, which clamp onto certain fish species gills and enjoy those host nutrients from two to three weeks. Eventually, they metamorphize, fall off their hosts, and spend the rest of their lives as free living creatures. Larvae that attach to inappropriate fish species are sloughed off before metamorphosis can occur and unfortunately die. Another important difference is that many freshwater mussels live a very long time before reaching edible size. As a result, they have a much longer time to bioaccumulate any toxins that exist in the water where they live, making them potentially dangerous to consume if not carefully monitored. Saltwater mussels, in contrast, reach edible size in about a year and a half, leading to a lower chance that they have bioaccumulated any potentially harmful substances from their marine environment. They also reproduce externally, with fertilization taking place in the water outside and resulting in tiny larval mussels that float around for a while until the lucky ones find a nice solid place to settle down and stretch out their anchoring bissel threads. The mussels are then anchored there for the rest of their lives. Sadly, mussels are the most imperiled group of animals in the United States. In fact, 35 species have gone extinct in the last 100 years. That's really sad, actually. It's very sad. (laughs) The quality and quantity of fresh water that drains into the United States saltwater sources can also have a great impact on shellfish aquaculture. In particular, the quality and quantity of fresh water in estuaries can impact the shellfish that either naturally live or are grown there. So an estuary is a partially enclosed body of brackish water with one or more rivers or streams flowing into it and with a free connection out to the open sea. So fun fact, most of the fish and shellfish eaten in the United States, including salmon, herring, and oysters, complete at least part of their life cycle in the estuary. Estuaries need fresh water to keep their ecosystems healthy. The water level and salinity of an estuary naturally varies over time and seasons. However, too much variation can upset the delicate balance the ecosystem requires. Estuary and ecosystems can also become unbalanced due to pollution that enters rivers upstream and is eventually discharged, such as land runoff and industrial, agricultural, and domestic waste. 
Let's look at Apalachicola Bay as an example. So Apalachicola Bay is an estuary and lagoon located on the northwest coast of Florida. Fun fact, at one time, Apalachicola Bay actually supplied 90% of the oysters sold in Florida and 10% of the oysters sold nationwide to buyers who loved the sweet and unusually large shellfish that the area produced. And during those times, it wasn't uncommon to see 600 oyster boats crowded together on the water, all harvesting oysters. A Bay resident even came up with a pasteurization method that allowed the mollusks to be packed and shipped, growing the local industry even more. However, the local oyster industry in the Bay has taken a steep nosedive since more profitable times. In 2013, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration declared the Bay a fishery disaster due to the sudden and unexpected losses of oysters that caused a serious economic impact for local fishermen and their communities. NOAA Fisheries administers disaster assistance to mitigate such impacts under two statutes, the Magnuson-Stevens Act and the Interjurisdictional Fisheries Act. And under both of these statutes, a state governor or an elected representative of an affected fishing community can request a fishery disaster determination from the Secretary of Commerce, who can also initiate an independent review. If the Secretary determines that a fishery disaster has occurred, the fishery is eligible for disaster assistance funds from Congress. Despite Congress's assistance, however, Apalachicola-based oyster fishery was left decimated with no real cause as to why. And there can be a, several reasons for this. Many attribute the collapse to a convergence of negative factors, including the 2010 BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill. After the spill, local oystermen successfully petitioned the state to allow them to harvest the entire bay early and work seven days a week to get the job done. Previously, only certain segments of the bay were open at a time, and oystering was only allowed five days a week. But in their race to escape the creeping oil, the oystermen did too good of a job. By harvesting so many adult oysters, baby oysters, or spat, didn't have enough adults to adhere to, preventing them from growing to maturity themselves. Using BP settlement money, the state tried to restore the bay by scattering fossilized oysters and limestone into the water, but the spat didn't take. Another contributing factor could be the oyster drill, which is a small marine snail that literally drill a hole into oyster shells in order to suck out the meat. In the past, the drills never have been able to survive in Apalachicola Bay's mix of salt and fresh water long enough to show up in large numbers. So the question was then, what changed? According to many, the answer to this question lies in the decades-old water dispute between Florida, Georgia, and Alabama, which has been raging since 1990. The entirety of this conflict is often referred to as the Tri-State Water Wars. Generally, the Tri-State Water Wars are a water use conflict among Georgia, Alabama, and Florida over flows in the Apalachicola, Chattahoochee, Flint River Basin and the Alabama, Coosa, Tallapoosa River Basin. Each of these states use those freshwater sources to meet multiple needs for their citizens, including those related to drinking water, power generation, agriculture, aquaculture, navigation, and recreation. So Georgia wants to continue growing its metro areas and supplying heavily agricultural areas with adequate water. And one of the biggest consumers of the disputed waters in the state is Atlanta, which because of the granite underlying much of the metro area has very little groundwater resources and as a result depends on the multiple river systems that originate near it for surface water. Alabama is concerned that Atlanta's ever-increasing thirst for water will severely limit its own use of water for power generation, municipal supply, fisheries, and other current and future needs. And then finally, Florida wants enough fresh water to reach the Apalachicola Bay to sustain its shellfish industry. 
as Atlanta and other upstream areas take more and more fresh water out of the sources that eventually flow into the bay, less fresh water actually reaches the bay, disrupting the balance of fresh water and salt water that allowed native oyster populations to thrive for eons. And this is a huge issue, actually, because Apalachicola Bay provides 35% of the freshwater flow to the eastern Gulf of Mexico. So now we can see why oyster drill populations are likely growing in the bay. The ecosystem isn't getting the freshwater it needs to thrive. And again, the oysters are not receiving the correct mix of fresh and salt water that they need to flourish. With these issues in Apalachicola Bay, what is being done about the situation? Long-term, ongoing litigation is preventing any real progress from reaching Apalachicola Bay. While the original Water Wars litigation that began in 1990 came to a close in 2012, a new series of legal actions began in 2013 over the waters and the U.S. Supreme Court, which has appointed a special master to oversee the proceedings. Special masters supervise litigation in order to ensure that the court orders are being followed and to report on the activities of the entity being supervised to the court. The U.S. Supreme Court normally assigns a special master to lawsuits brought between states that are first heard at the Supreme Court level. This is because the Supreme Court is an appellate court, meaning that it reviews cases that have already had a trial by a lower court. In most cases, the court already has a record and evidence to review when it is deciding a case. When states sue each other, however, the case goes right to the Supreme Court. This means that there has been no trial before the court gets the case. There is no record, evidence, or prior ruling for it to review. In cases between the states, the special master conducts what amounts to a trial, the taking of evidence and a ruling. The Supreme Court then assesses the special master's ruling as an appeals court would, rather than conduct the trial itself. And the Florida versus Georgia case has now been going on for over five years. Lawsuits between states do not go away quickly, meaning that for the time being, more fresh water is not reaching Apalachicola Bay. In 2016, the special master, who is a lawyer based in Maine, released his report in the case. He found that while Florida was indeed harmed, the state didn't prove by clear and convincing evidence that putting a cap on how much water Georgia could consume would actually improve the river flows at a time that would provide a material benefit to Florida. Further, he found that because the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers was not a party to the case, Florida could not actually receive the relief it sought. So in 2018, the Supreme Court ruled that the special master applied too high of a standard to Florida's claims. So the court then replaced the original special master and sent the case back to be heard by the new special master. The court gave the new special master a set of questions to answer. And over the last year, the two states have been submitting additional briefs based on the Supreme Court's ruling. The hearing is now set for December 16, 2019 in New Mexico. In the meantime, former wild harvesters of oysters in Apalachicola Bay are increasingly looking forward to aquaculture. Though the oysters are smaller on average and pricier to produce, many are hoping that consumers will pay a premium to eat oysters from Apalachicola Bay again. They also hope that aquaculture gear, such as mesh baskets, will protect the shellfish from predators, further helping new farmers turn a profit. But is Apalachicola Bay's situational function of states prioritizing urban areas? such as Atlanta over rural ones like Apalachicola Bay. This urban versus rural dispute can be seen in other freshwater-related scenarios, such as the opening of the Bonacary Spillway in the Mississippi River. The Bonacary Spillway is a flood control operation in the lower Mississippi Valley located in St. Charles Parish, Louisiana, about 12 miles west of New Orleans. It allows floodwaters from the Mississippi River to flow into Lake Pontchartrain and eventually into the Gulf of Mexico. 
Today, the spillway primarily helps to divert river floodwaters from the city of New Orleans. A little bit of a fun fact, um, the spillway was actually built in response to the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 that inundated much of the Mississippi River Basin with floodwaters. It was first opened during the Ohio River Flood of 1937, which left around 1 million people homeless and resulted in property damage amounting to approximately $500 million, which is approximately $8.7 billion when adjusted for inflation in 2019. So the spillway has been open 11 other times since it was built, but most recently in February 2019, when river levels were predicted to rise to minor flood stage in New Orleans due to excessive upriver rainfall. According to the National Weather Service, this year's flooding was caused by pounding spring rains and is the longest lasting flooding since the Great Flood of 1927. The Army Corps of Engineers closed the spillway on April 11, 2019, only to reopen it again on May 10, 2019, marking the first time in the spillway's history that it has opened twice in one year, as well as the first time the spillway has been opened two years in a row. Unfortunately, opening the spillway in 2019 also yielded negative ecological results. Though the Army Corps' actions may have saved New Orleans from a lot of flooding-related damage, the negative impacts of the two openings can still be felt elsewhere in and around the Gulf. Well, that's a little weird, Kathy. How could opening the spillway have impacted other parts of the Gulf? Wouldn't it have just backed up floodwaters into the more rural parts of Louisiana? You might think so, Amanda, but that's unfortunately not the case. Let's look at Mississippi, for example. As a result of the opening of the Bonnie Care Spillway, much of the floodwaters from the Mississippi River were diverged into the Mississippi Sound, significantly unbalancing the fresh and salt water there and inundating the area with excessive nutrients originating from upstream sources. In July, Mississippi announced that the increase in fresh water into the Sound was responsible for the death of the state's oyster beds, which could take years to recover. Furthermore, the influx of fresh water killed approximately 132 dolphins and 175 sea turtles. Oh God, that's so sad. I agree, Amanda. How awful. The state was also forced to begin closing its beaches in June due to a harmful algal bloom, or a HAB, of blue-green algae, a dangerous event that happens when too many nutrients, like fertilizers, enter a body of water. Such blooms can be intensified by higher temperature waters, and algal toxins can also be bioaccumulated by the fish and shellfish that live in the area. By the 4th of July, Mississippi was forced to close all of its mainland beaches due to the toxic bacteria. Well, that doesn't sound like a very fun holiday weekend. No, it sure doesn't. The HAB off the coast of Mississippi actually followed a HAB in 2018 in Florida that was the worst HAB in decades in the state, as beach closures and fish kills plagued the state's coasts. The red tide lasted for months, prompting the state to declare a state of emergency. However, HABs are not purely a marine problem. They can actually occur in freshwater sources as well. Freshwater HABs are increasing due to nutrients from sources such as fertilizers and other agricultural runoff entering freshwater sources. While not every algal bloom is toxic, some algal species can produce both toxic and non-toxic blooms. Toxic blooms can cause problems for swimmers and other recreational users in the form of rashes or allergic reactions, similar to the symptoms feared of with Mississippi's blue-green algae bloom. HABs have numerous negative health effects for humans. Just coming into contact with contaminated water can actually cause skin rashes or burns. HABs are also poisonous if consumed. They can cause diarrhea, vomiting, nausea, numbness, and dizziness. Some health effects can even be more severe. For instance, two toxins from blue-green algae, microcystins and cylindrospermospin, 
can cause liver and kidney toxicity respectively. The children, the elderly, people with compromised liver function, and pets are especially vulnerable to the toxins present in HABs. In 2014, another blue-green algal bloom in Lake Erie affected the drinking water for more than 500,000 people in Toledo, Ohio. And in 2016, a massive HAB in Florida's Lake Okeechobee negatively impacted tourism and aquatic life. In May 2018, the city of Salem, Oregon, which obtains its drinking water from the Detroit Lake, found dangerous levels of blue-green algal toxins in its water supply. The result was a do-not-drink-water advisory that lasted for weeks, and the Oregon Health Authority issued a temporary rule requiring that certain larger drinking water systems that use surface water regularly test for cyanotoxins. HABs also have the potential to harm aquatic organisms, including freshwater shellfish being cultured for food, by contributing to deteriorating water quality and ecosystem health. As masses of blue-green or other algae die and decompose, they consume oxygen, sometimes forming dead zones where life cannot survive. This condition is known as hypoxia. Such areas kill fish and other organisms such as crabs and clams, potentially causing detrimental economic effects. However, the toxins present in algal blooms do not likely harm shellfish directly. Though shellfish bioaccumulate toxins present in HABs, they can harm humans when eaten. They are not apparently affected by the biotoxins themselves. Congress, federal agencies, and the states have taken steps to address HABs and the nutrients that contribute to their occurrence. For example, the Harmful Algal Bloom and Hypoxia Research and Control Act of 1998 authorized a task force to prepare reports and plans addressing marine and freshwater HABs and approved funding for research, education, and monitoring activities, among other things. Furthermore, in December of 2016, the EPA used its authority under the Clean Water Act to propose water quality criteria for two algal toxins in waters used for recreational purposes. States use such criteria when developing water quality standards, measures that describe the desired condition or level of protection of a water body and what is needed for protection. The values the EPA picked were based on the non-cancer health effects to children. While HABs can pose risks to pets, the levels are meant to be protective of human and not animal health. In May 2019, the EPA finalized the recommendations for recreational water quality criteria and swimming advisories for two cyanotoxins. The finalized recommendations aim to prevent the human health risks associated with swimming and other recreational activities in waters containing these blue-green algal toxins. The water quality criteria apply to both marine and freshwater water bodies. Sources and the final values are about twice as high as the draft values proposed by the Obama administration in 2016. The EPA stated that its recommendations are protective of all age groups and are based on peer-reviewed and published science. Some states have also developed guidelines for algal toxins, primarily for use in guiding swimming advisories, and Congress continues to show interest in addressing HABs, interest that has largely focused on funding research to close gaps identified by scientists and decision makers, and to coordinate the efforts of federal agencies and their partners to study and address HABs. Join us next time as we explore the impact of storms and other disasters on shellfish aquaculture operations, including resources available to assist in recovery. This podcast is a production of the National Sea Grant Law Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law. It is made possible in part by funding from the NOAA National Sea Grant College Program. The statements, findings, conclusions, and recommendations are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of NOAA or the U.S. Department of Commerce. Editing and production assistance was provided by Kerrigan Harrod. 
a senior journalism student at the University of Mississippi. Thanks for listening.